Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Program Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by Sahar Swadan, PharmD, RPH, and many other uh, initializations. Dr. Swadan obtained her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Michigan, where she completed a three-year biopharmaceutics research fellowship. She's the president and CEO of Pharmacy Solutions in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a unique personal and educational specialty pharmacy. She's a clinical associate professor of pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy, and she's an adjunct professor in our integrative medicine programs here, where she helps with our omics course. She's an internationally known speaker in the area of pain management and the author of several books, articles, and patient education materials in the area of pain management and functional medicine. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Swedan. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. To start us off, can you give us a brief introduction on the history of the medicinal use of cannabis? So, you know, um, this was, you know, Mary Jane, the plant, as I call it, right? This has been kind of uh, vicarious, how everybody lives vicariously through that. You know, we've had marijuana around, obviously, for many, many decades, but really only recently after the legalization of the medicinal uses of marijuana that it really, we needed to embody the science and the knowledge in the medical arena. And I actually tease because I've been lecturing a lot on medical marijuana, CBD, and just the phytocannabinoids in general, which is really where the science is leading. Um, but this has been kind of the difficult part for us. And I actually can give a lecture. I'm like, okay, the medical marijuana train has left the building, but really we have not done a good job of educating the professionals on medicinal marijuana, even the cannabinoids, appropriate use you know, potential side effects and adverse reactions, potential drug interactions that could occur from this. So as you guys know, you know, this is really only in the last few years where medical marijuana has become, you know, legalized for medicinal purposes and and obviously in some states for recreational purposes. And I think now that's where the really a lot of science is needed. And you can see since the legalization, obviously we are able to do much more our typical scientifically driven studies to look at this world, you know, the appropriate use of this, the different disease states where patients may benefit from this, and most importantly, the safe of of use of this. Um, Honestly, I'm calling this, it's kind of the wild, wild west out there. Um, And especially now with the legalization or the farm bill or, you know, the legalization of hemp too, um, there's so much misinformation, I think, misguidance, and not necessarily the best products that are out there, you know, because not everybody understands the role of um, and the importance of the appropriate development, you know, following good manufacturing practices and things like that, that I think we should talk a little bit about um, that. But again, you know, medical marijuana of just cannabis and CDBD and phytocannabinoids, it's a very recent phenomenon in medicine that now we're really wrapping our arms around it in a medical way to um, elicit the appropriate uses, like I said, safe uses and adverse reactions. You are channeling some of the things that we discussed 
a year, a little more than a year ago when we did a um, medical marijuana and cannabis uh, podcast with uh, Dr. Misha Kogan, who's our GW subject matter expert on um, the medical use of uh, cannabis and cannabinoids. But we also had a chance to talk with uh, Dr. Don Abrams, who, as you know, is the guy. And if you could go in, uh, talk a little bit about how the different um, delivery agents for the cannabis and um, cannabinoids can affect how they're going to react yeah. with a patient. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, let's start at 101, as I call it, right? So I, I just did a webinar on this even just last week, and it was really, what is the difference between medical cannabis or medical marijuana versus CBD versus phytocannabinoids? As you guys know, from speaking to the experts you just mentioned, to a lot of, honestly, good information to misinformation that's out there, and just honestly, bluntly wrong information that's out there. Um, you know, there is differences between these, their clinical efficacy, safety profiles, and what is appropriate to use in what setting. So, you know, medicinal marijuana, obviously that's the whole plant, which contains a lot of different phytocannabinoids, right? So um, you have, you know, cannabis sativa and cannabis indica, and marijuana could be a species of both. And so that's the whole plant. So it has a mixture of what's known as the phytocannabinoids. Obviously, the most famous ones that everybody kind of knows about and, and probably the most well-published is, you know, CBD or cannabinoidiol or THC, uh, tetrahydrocannabal, you know. Uh, cannabis. The problem with medical marijuana now is I tease and I say, hey, this ain't your grandma's pot of the 70s, right? Uh, the medical marijuana now in the strains and because some of the genetic modification that occurred, it's very potent in THC, which as you guys know, is the psychoactive component of the medicinal marijuana plant, at least the most psychoactive. Now, the marijuana plants, really, they have over 120 and probably more, 115 now is what the science is showing, different phytocannabinoids in that plant, right? So they have a lot of different actions, whether it's, um, you know, good and bad, you know, obviously from the anti-inflammatory to the calming effect, to the epilepsy control, to calming anxiety, to decreasing inflammation, but it also has some of the psychoactive component, right? You know, dulling your senses, slowing the brain down to, you know, hallucination and psychosis. Um, it's very interesting, you know, actually in states where legalized marijuana or recreational use has been legalized. Um, a lot of my friends in the ER medicine world, you know, tell me now it's crazy because, you know, they have people, spectators, I guess, whatever you want to call them. They come to those states, they try marijuana or, you know, for the first time or, or whatever. And because it's so much more potent now, the ERs are filled with these patients because of psychosis, psychotic breakdowns, hallucinations and things, because it's so much more potent. And it's really, um, you know, breaking down their attention where they're not able to take care of like emergencies or real emergencies, if you will, like heart attacks and, and strokes and things like that. 
So, so definitely, you know, smoking is not good. The problem also with smoking. So remember when you have the whole plant, you know, plants, sometimes they're grown with a lot of herbicides, pesticides, depending on the soil that it was grown. And if it was clean soil or dirty soil, if you will, you know, because of many herbicides and pesticides that have to be used in different agriculture or practices. So whenever you're smoking the whole plant, it's very important to really uh, look at the certificate of analysis of that plant. You know, what is the content of the cannabinoids, the different phytocannabinoids? How much THC does it have? Is it clean of pesticides and herbicides? Does it have terpenes and and lemonines and things like that, which are the other components that really add to the efficacy. Um, you know, obviously being in the healthcare field, I don't think smoking anything is is good for you because... You know, you're not just smoking the marijuana, if you will. You're smoking all the other sometimes additives and things that are toxic, you know. So I think other forms, you know, are definitely much cleaner. Now, in medicine, in medical uses, I think using cleaner extract, like full-spectrum phytocannabinoids. So, and you can get now, you know, that are organic, non-GMO, pesticide and herbicide-free, um, you know, and they don't have all the toxins. So whenever you use a full-spectrum, spectrum phytocannabinoid mixture that's organic, non-GMO, and clean, you can really control the destiny, if you will. And you can also get some of them, they absolutely have absolute zero THC. So we don't have to worry about the psychoactive component. So I think in medicine and for medicinal uses, that is definitely a cleaner form to use for patients. And you can also gauge the dosing, right? So for chronic pain, for example, most people recommend two and a half to five milligrams of CBD starting twice daily, and you can increase it slowly. Probably the sweet spot for most patients with chronic pain and inflammation tends to be probably in about the 20 milligram range. So again, you don't need a lot. You know, Everything out there, all we heard is THC, CBD, THC, CBD, but actually most of the science now is leading towards the use of this mixture of these cannabinoids because they have what's called the entourage effect. So all these different like CBDs and CBGs and CBAs and things like that um, really seem to kind of work synergistically because, you know, the endocannabinoid system, it's kind of like the conductor of the orchestra. And because the endocannabinoid system kind of sits on top of a lot of other regulatory systems in the body, it's literally like the messenger, um, it's the modifier to a lot of messengering in the in the body per se. So it's really the conductor of the orchestra. And that's why with tinctures, you know, what we're really finding, A, they're cleaner. You can look at the certificate of analysis, find out exactly where did it come from, you know, from seed to shelf, I always say, you know, you really want to know what happened to that product from seed to your mouth, you know, before you put it in. Um and, and, you know, now sometimes for um, brain types of whether it's seizures, you know, anxiety disorders, things like that, um, sometimes we may need slightly higher dosing. Sometimes there may be additive potential of having very slight amounts of THC. So sometimes for, you know, certain neurological indications, a combination of these mixed phytocannabinoids with a CBD-THC ratio in the science now is showing us, hey, who 
Who needs just, you know, these mixed phytocannabinoids? Who may need a little mixture with slight THC to kind of really augment the clinical effect? And now that literature is kind of making smattering, you know, and coming into that world. And, and that's what's been the best thing of legalizing this, honestly, is because now we can study it in institutions and find out the clinical differences, but also these adverse reactions. Like, for example, very recently in Medscape, just a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, um, they reported this odd syndrome. You know, it's called cannabis hyperemesis per se. So they don't know what causes it, but it seems like people kind of come in and it's kind of like, you know, pregnant women when they have this hyperemesis um you know, issue where they're just vomiting non-controllably and a lot of our typical medications that can help slow that down doesn't seem to be working for it. And sometimes it takes, you know, 12 to 24 hours to kind of subside. So, you know, that's the question now, like in medicine, like, huh, what is causing that? Is it a certain ratio of THC to CBD concentration or is it just way too much THC? We know THC can help with like sometimes, you know, they use it a lot in cancer cachexia and chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, and it's helpful. But if you give too much, is that what trips people the other way, right? So that's what's been kind of really nice is to kind of learn these clinical benefits, but also potential adverse reactions. And, you know, I really have to, obviously, being a pharmacist and a pharmacy, I'm like, you know, we used to think, oh, these things did not interact with drugs. But now we know, you know, CBD, medical marijuana, which is full of mixed cannabinoids, can really affect the liver enzyme system or drug metabolizing systems. So they can slow it down. Um, and so there's definitely some potential drug interactions that clinicians need to be aware of before recommending or adding, let's say, a medical marijuana, whether it's, you know, vaped or ingested in edible or, you know, sublingual, you know, CBD or mixed phytocannabinoid tinctures, we really need to make sure that whatever we're recommending and adding um, is really safe with their current medication, but also supplement regimens. They're, they have shown some supplement interactions in addition to medication interactions. Thank you for that. That was very interesting. One thing that you mentioned was about uh, smoking and how we would, as healthcare providers, never recommend smoking. And I know um, one of the public health concerns now actually isn't so much about smoking, but about vaporizing or vaping. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, is that something that's being used for medical marijuana or is it something that you would recommend? So honestly, we don't recommend anything in the lungs, if you will, just because, again, it, you know, smoking and vaping to me are very similar because, again, if the toxins or, again, if you're starting with something messy, if you will, whether it's whole plant versus a cleaned out version, if you will, right, that's what ends up in the vape. Uh, you know, vaporizer cartridges and things like that, right? Usually it's kind of distilled extraction of, you know, whatever plant material. So that's the problem is, again, sometimes if you're not starting with clean source to begin with, it's going to end up in vaping. And if they don't have, you know, 
again, good manufacturing practices, some of the medical mentality for this, if you will, not the industrial mentality where we are checking for all these potential toxins at the end of the process to make sure all of these things are removed. Sometimes the chemicals that are used in the extraction process are very toxic. So it's not just what the plant came in with, if you will. Sometimes the chemicals used in the extraction process could be toxic also. So again, with good manufacturing practices and things like that, a lot of times also you make sure whatever chemicals you used in the cleanup extraction process, if you will, is also out of the final product. So, so vaporizing, you know, smoking, again, similar because the potential issues and toxins could be there. You know, so what's left? Edibles, right? So, you know, sometimes topicals, right? People, you know, and I just talked to a patient at Sonic Consult. She's like, okay, I'm going to tell you this, but I didn't tell my doctor this, but my um, brother-in-law or something, she goes, he kind of makes his own salve from marijuana plant. And I was rubbing it on my trigger finger. Oh my God. And it worked so well. And then I was putting it on top of my knee and, you know, and so on and so on. Like you always hear in pain patients, right? So, um, so the point is, you know, there's, there's topicals, right. That you can also get from, you know, the dispensing shops, if you will, or people are cooking the stuff at home in their basements per se. Um, you know, so again, you know, the, there's the topical administration of cannabinoids, right, and the phytocannabinoids for pain and inflammation, you know, and then that leaves the edibles. Now, the problem we're finding with the edibles is I think that one is the most potentially dangerous because of potential overdoses. You know, a lot of times people, obviously they want immediate gratification and they want pain relief now. And so, you know, they'll eat, let's say, whatever the recommended dose based on their dosing of, let's say a brownie and they eat like, let's say a quarter brownie. And so, you know, because with tinctures or vaping or smoking, it's very quick, right? Within 15 minutes to half an hour, they feel the effect. Well, with edibles, it could be delayed, right? So it could be an hour and a half to three hours, possibly, depending on gut motility of people, digestion, you know, altered bowels, all that stuff that we tend to see with gut issues in the country. And so sometimes they may not get the effect until one and a half to three hours. So then they go, oh my God, it's not working. You know, so then they take another quarter and another quarter and so on. And that's what we're seeing sometimes in the medical community is actually the overdoses are much higher with the edibles because of that. Um, and so now with, you know, CBD, um, you know, the other or, you know, whether it's hemp or again, marijuana extract, you know, with CBD or mixed phytocannabinoids, we really don't recommend oral, you know, oral ingestion because, a, that they're very susceptible to degradation. Um, so they're degraded a lot by stomach juices and things like that. Also, there has been some case reports in the literature where actually your digestive juices per se can turn some of the CBD into THC, which can make it a little bit more psychoactive. And they think that's potentially the reason why sometimes in pediatrics, as you know, they were using lots of CBD tinctures uh, for obviously epilepsy control, but they think that was the reason why it led, even though it's non-psychoactive, right? It was converted to THC and it led to some of the sedation, you know, drowsiness and, and kind of hallucinations that sometimes we can see with THC. So for CBD, or mixed phytocannabinoids, really we think sublingual is the best way to um, 
use them and also you can control you know the dosing much better that way too so we recommend tincture sublingual administration for mixed phytocannabinoids and honestly probably from a medical perspective that is the best and the cleanest one is to get an organic non-gmo clean mixed phytocannabinoid with probably no thc unless you have some of those other conditions um you know that we mentioned because you can control it. It's clean. We can control the dosing much better. And also the effect is much faster sublingually than edible and some other things. Very interesting. You sort of alluded to this already, but what are the the leading contenders for disorders, illnesses, diseases that we can treat with medical cannabis? So, you know, it's interesting. Well, almost everything right now that, you know, some of the, and, and why is that, you know? And, it's magic. Yeah, that's why I asked. <laughs> well, well, you know, and the problem is, you know, sometimes I always say, oh, it's the last, it's the latest magic bullet, right? Every time we come up with something new, you know, it's kind of like when methylation came out, right? Oh my God, everybody has methylation defect, right? Then, <laughs> yes. Or mold and lime. Oh my God, everybody's got mold and lime, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know, I just think we all always have the buzz of the day or the buzz of the decade or the buzz of the year, right? But, you know, but but they're, they're very interesting compounds, right? So again, I think the phytocannabinoid story, I'm not a huge fan specifically of medical marijuana, only because it tends to be smoked and vaped. And, and I just don't think that's very healthy for our patients, honestly, or like the edibles with the potential toxicities that we discussed. But is there a role for medical, you know, cannabis and phytocannabinoids? Yes, thousand percent agree. And it's very interesting, you know, they really can help a lot of things. So we used to think, oh, you have these CB1 receptors that are mainly in the brain, but they're found all over the body, but higher concentration in the brain. And then you have these CB2 receptors, which are mainly outside of the brain. Obviously, you have them in the brain too, along the immune system, right? So we thought, okay, you know, they kind of like that helped your brain and this kind of helped your immune system and there you go, done. But now what we're finding is that really even CBD and these mixed phytocannabinoids, they don't even bind to these receptors specifically per se. Like THC, we know binds to the CB1 receptors much more preferentially. Now we're finding about these other, you know, cannabinoids is what they really do because the endocannabinoid system kind of, like I said, it's the conductor and it sits on top of the orchestra per se, um, that they really modify and modulate tons and tons of different signaling pathways, you know, and they've shown a lot of different signal, like the TRPV1, the, you know, the capsaicin kind of receptors, the PPARs and many other systems, you know. Um, And so that's why they are touted to help just about anything because it's literally the conductor of the orchestra that can modulate, you know, like neuro excitation, like glutamate exocitation, you know, so anxiety, bipolar, maybe psychosis, right? But now if you give too much THC, you can elicit psychosis, right? So it's always with the body. It's about the balance, right? So I look at them as a modulatory system versus kind of like activating an inhibitory system if you do it right and provide the right doses, 
you know, for patients. Do we need the mixed phytocannabinoids? Yes. Do some patients need maybe a little more THC than CBD or the other phytocannabinoids? Absolutely. I think some of the science is beginning to show us the ratios in different diseases, um, that are needing, but that's why you see them. They help with insomnia. They help with hormonal stuff. They help with infertility. You know, they're helping with inflammation and pain. They're helping with seizures. They're helping with neurodegeneration. You know, couple case reports showed that they may potentially worsen Parkinson's, but again, that could be just a dose dependency thing that we didn't find out about. You know, a couple case reports that it worsened tremor. Dr. But again, Sudan, yes, you brought a t- something up that, that I really think uh, it would be great if you could um, elaborate on is what is holding us back um, in our understanding and use of medical cannabis in the U.S.? I think really the main thing that was holding us back is really regulation, right? You know, I mean, because again, this is, you know, even the endocannabinoid system, we didn't discover it. You know, we have not known about this for like 50, 100 years, right? We just discovered this like what, in the last 20 years, you know, the endocannabinoid system in the brain per se, you know, just in the last couple decades plus. Um, So I think a lot of it was regulatory. I think a lot of it was stigma, you know, right. A lot of it is kind of controlling the source. You know, the problem is it's so hard to do clinical studies with something that can change literally from plant to plant and, you know, next crop to next crop. It's very interesting, even clinically now with patients, you know, even buying the same brand, if you will, of CBD, for example, you will see a lot of times they have to almost retitrate their dose with every new bottle because the certificate of analysis or the composition or the fingerprint, as we call it, of that plant can literally change from today to the next crop, right? So so I think that's been what was holding us back. It was, you know, A, legal status, B, stigma, C, funding, and D, how do you control a wild thing because it's nature, you know, if you will, that can literally change from seed to seed, crop to crop, even within the same farm, right? Because, you know, if you got too much rain, did you get enough rain? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? I mean, all of Is the soil have what it needs, yeah, the nutrients exactly. it needs? The nutrients, the nutrient profile will change because now, oh, this crop sucked all the nutrients out of the soil and left the next crop with nothing. I mean, it's that's why it's like the wild, wild west, literally on multiple fronts. And I think that's why it's hard to kind of, we're like running, uh, we're trying to get data from, uh, you know, a running target, literally, right? <laughs> you know, yes. that's why I think it's difficult, honestly. But to be honest with you, you know, some of the best data that we've had has been coming out of Europe and in Israel because they've done, you know, because it was kind of whatever legal. And, and really the drug or pharmaceutical um, type studies that we have, because we do have, you know, THC that's been around that drug for, God, probably 25, even longer years now, right? You know, THC that was using cancer cachexian, you know, and cancer nausea, vomiting, chemo-induced, you know, some of the other ones were a CBD-THC combination. The more recent one, the Epidiolox, which was obviously approved by the FDA for seizures. But those are, you know, very specific isolates that are synthetic 
And so they can control the journey every time, right? So some of the data that we're learning now really has been coming from either, you know, European data, Israeli data, and, and some of the, um, the pharmaceutical drugs that we have. But definitely now I think that the lid has been lifted off, I think, with some of the regulatory stuff. I think we'll definitely continue to see more and more scientific and more Something studies. to look forward yeah. to. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that um, medical cannabis can be used for pain and it can be used for inflammation and that it's difficult to work with natural products. So um, that applies to a lot of other potential treatments for inflammation and pain as well. Could you give us some highlights of a few others? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, as you've heard me lecture on this many times, right? Um, you know, the regulation of supplements and vitamins and, you know, and medical marijuana is not a supplement, you know, neither is CBD, as we all know, it's not under, you know, with the um, FDA linked as a, you know, uh, I mean, um, labeled as a dietary supplement, right? So that's why even with CBD, mixed phytocannabinoids, any supplement and vitamin, you really have to know, again, from seed to your mouth, what has happened to that? What's the quality? What's the certificate of analysis of that? So for example, another very commonly you know, besides the mixed phytocannabinoids and CBD and things for pain, you know, so everybody's heard turmeric, right? Curcumin and turmeric for pain, for example, boswellia, another great anti-inflammatory, very well studied in the literature. You know, I mean, we have hundreds of articles on turmeric and curcumin and their beneficial effects in a variety of conditions, especially with pain, inflammation, um, even with cellular apoptosis, you know, potentially in some of those treatments. So, but again, you know, quality matters, you know, with, because they're not regulated, like in Europe, um, supplements are very regulated, just like drugs, they undergo, you know, they're called nutraceuticals. So here, there's definitely some governance, but it's very different. And it's nowhere near the government's the governance of drugs, obviously, in this country. That's why it's very important for consumers to really look at the data. What makes a good curcumin? Curcumin by fault in turmeric is not well absorbed. So there has been some, you know, extracts in the in the study, like the Mariva extract, for example, and they've shown they've done some studies to improve its efficacy and absorption. Um, you know, patients want to look for things that are pharmaceutical grade supplement and vitamins. Why? Because pharmaceutical grade means that the certificate of analysis has been looked at. The raw material has high purity low contamination and that it meets a lot of the regulatory standards for excellent quality pharmaceutical grade type supplement. Um, some things like to look for like USP verified, um, NSF verified. So these are again, third parties that can give their seal of approval of the supplement that it's good quality. Another one that I love, 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 as you guys heard me before is consumerlabs.com. Um, this is an independent third-party work group, if you will. And what they do is they really just take products off the shelf and they basically test them to make sure that these companies meet the label claim that they're claiming to contain X amount of whatever in your label, that it's good quality, it's safe, it's free of contaminants. That's the other huge thing that we all have to worry about with supplements and vitamin is contamination. I mean, they've shown, you know, anywhere from, hey, you know, this label says it has this much, you know, 
um, vitamin or supplement or herbal extract in it, and it comes out as having zero or very little, um, doesn't meet. I couldn't agree with you more on that, actually. I even did my undergraduate thesis on that exact topic. Yeah. uh, And we're still having this problem. Many, many moons later, right? You know? Right. Um, Yeah. You'd think we'd get it figured out. Yeah. So that's the problem. So it's very important. So now that just means it's not going to work. But the other problem, which is really the other end of the spectrum, is the contaminants that we're finding sometimes in these vitamins and supplements. Because sometimes, you know, they're made, you know, here or abroad. They're made on drug lines. So sometimes some of the like erectile dysfunction, libido enhancing supplements or touted to kind of help with that. What they find in them is a lot of medications. So, you know, such as like the Viagra and Cialis type drugs that are Mm -hmm. in these supplements because of contaminants, because they're basically pressed on the same line as the drugs and things like that. So very important to look for pharmaceutical grade, look for purity standards, go research the companies, look at their efficacy. Do they have any clinical studies? You know, that would be the best. Hey, was their extract effective? Was it safe? What are the adverse reactions? You know, the other huge misconception with just supplements and vitamins in general is, oh, you know, I hear this from patients all day long, right? Especially in pain, you know, because, you know, they're so desperate, they'll try anything. Um, Is, oh, they're natural. They can't harm me or do anything (laughs) or interact. And I always remind them in ITs and I go, yeah, well, so is cyanide. Cyanide is natural too, (laughs) you know, but it Mm -hmm. can kill you, right? So, you know, that's very important, you know, look at what you want to buy, make sure it's pharmaceutical grade, make sure it's got this USP or NSF certification, make sure it has, you know, or go to consumerlabs.org. I think it's only, you know, I don't know, I'm not on their payroll or anything. So I, like, <laughs> I love that that website. It's like 25 or 30 bucks a year, you know, such so worth the money. To, to look and see what you want to buy and if it's safe, effective, did it meet the label claim, all that good stuff that they test independently. And always make sure you check with your provider, healthcare provider or pharmacist to make sure that whatever you want to use is compatible with your current medication and other supplements. They do interact like curcumin and turmeric interact, you know, Boswellia can interact. Like we talked about medical marijuana and CBD can interact, you know, they can either slow down the metabolism of drugs or they can speed it up. And so depending on what it is, it can be bad either way. So very critical to go through those safety steps to make sure whatever you're using is safe, um, is effective, but most importantly, safe for you. Yeah, that's a a really excellent point. Um, Going back to your statement about natural products, um, another natural product that we have seen being used and be overused for pain is opioids. And I'm wondering how we can avoid simply replacing one naturally derived pain treatment such as opioids with another, perhaps a medical marijuana. Yeah, you know, um, it's very interesting. So, you know, the book that I'm writing is Opioid Free Pain Management. <laughs> um, very, Perfect. I didn't even know that. Yeah, you know, very timely <laughs> topic, obviously, on multiple levels. So, and I'm also, you know, co editing and co authoring it with a lot of brilliant colleagues across the country that kind of specialize in the different things. And what we're trying to do is to, again, really bring awareness because, unfortunately, honestly, in school, this is what everybody was taught. We were taught NSAIDs are opioids for pain. Oh, and by the way, ice and heat too, right? You know, (laughs) so we really, you know, we did not teach healthcare providers a lot of other modalities. And then, you know, now we're calling it the opioid crisis. And I'm like, really? I mean, like, this is a surprise to everybody. Um, 
So anyways, you know, that's the other thing, even with some of the detox strategies, right? So a lot of times we switch them from one opioid to another opioid. That's the detox strategy, right? It's a longer, and I'm like, how is that cleaning up and detoxing people, right? So honestly, I have major issues with that too. And that's another podcast and discussion per se, <laughs> um, you know, but but, you know, that that's the point. You know, I think with pain management, it's a multi-system approach. It's it's a totally whole body approach. I mean, it's it's very interesting from, you know, anywhere from gut health and that we've seen, you know, how the gut talks to the brain, how the gut is 80% of your immune system. Inflammation most of the time starts from there, you know. So it's all very important to address if we really want to control and heal pain, not band-aid it, like you said, because sometimes we'll go from one band-aid to the next. That's band-aid medicine. That's not really fixing the root cause, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And also with opioids, we have to be careful because a lot of times they can cause what's called opioid-induced hyperalgesis. So sometimes the medication is actually making the pain worse, right? So that's where Mm -hmm. we have to really, I think, in the curriculum now. And and it's great, you know, with your university and many others now, you know, I can't tell you how happy I am because I get asked to lecture to the M1s and M2s now. You know, we're really starting much earlier to treat, to teach them whole body system and whole body physiology and better pain management, or as I, as I call it, smarter pain management, no longer the band-aid, to really address from neuroinflammation to gut inflammation to you know, um, the serotonergic pathways to the brain, you know, how do we do limbic system retraining, you know, and how do we kind of retrain the body from feeling the pain? How do we have, just like we have wind up of pain, how do we have wind down of pain, right? Artificial intelligence in that really cool new world that we're getting smatterings of now in the literature and how it modifies pain. Um, you know, using, you know, acupuncture to energy medicine to all that good stuff, you know, to using some uh, well-published, you know, vitamin supplement herbal extracts. I mean, like PEA, for example, we have over 30 trials out of Europe about the amazing pain-relieving property of, it's kind of a phospholipid, you know, lipid membrane stabilization and things like that. And it's anti-inflammatory role, whether it's orally or topically for things like psoriasis and eczema. Um, you know, just going back to CBD even and, and really the mixed phytocannabinoids, that's the cool new frontier now is really topical medications for things like eczema, psoriasis and stuff instead of using, you know, especially maybe in younger kids. And we need the studies and the trials, but, you know, instead of using steroids and, and, and worse, some of these immunosuppressants that sometimes, unfortunately, we have to use because right now it's the best tools that we have, you know. So, um so absolutely, you know, it's it's really we have to go to root cause medicine, if you will, now versus Band-Aid, especially with pain management, if we really want to make a dent in it and totally reform, if you will, you know, pain treatment and pain management. So it's no longer just Band-Aiding, but truly, hopefully eliminating root cause if possible, but if not using this total body modality to truly give people better tools and options to use besides uh, the opioids. Now, the opioids, 
are appropriate for very limited number of people. There are some people, you know what? They take their three or four Vicodins a day. They've used it for years. They're functional. It gives them their life back, you know? So again, I always look at medications. They're phenomenal tools that we have that we need to use appropriately and judiciously in the right people. So, cause you know, that's why I always like, I, I always try to stay in the middle. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, before it's like, you know, before we were really loosey-goosey with, you know, prescribing <laughs> And it's like, it's okay. Treat everybody. Everybody needs this. It's good for them. We can't have people have pain. You know, pain is the fifth vital sign, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh, my God, don't touch that stuff and take everybody off of it. So now it's like, what? You know? Yeah, the pendulum swings. So pendulum swings. And, you know, and that's never good for providers or patients because now we have a lot of people in pain we've abruptly taken their kind of crutch or pain relief away, but we have not taught the system better ways to deal with pain, whether it's the providers or the patients yet. And so now they're kind of in the middle going, uh, what do I do? Same thing with providers. You know, a lot of them are like, their hands are up in the air. Like, what do I do with these really tough people in these regulations now and things like that? So, you know, I just like, I wish we just don't do these swings in medicine, you know, let's <laughs> logically assess the situation. Let's look at who's appropriate candidate. You know, it, yes, not everybody's an appropriate candidate for this, but there are some people now, you know, where they had their life and everything and they were totally functional. And now they're like, you know, basically we just kind of yank the rug from under them. So that's what I'm honestly working really hard across the country to just teach other modalities. And hopefully, um, as I said, the book was, you know, I mean, God knows you guys know this, you know, books are the worst ROI on your time life. <laughs> a lot of people get divorced during book writing. It's just like, it's the worst ROI on anything. Right. But, um, especially my kids, you know, my six and seven year old constantly going seriously, mommy, all you do is lecture, teach and write book, you know? Um, but the point is like, I just felt like, it was a little bit of a humanitarian effort, you know, because we really do need to teach, um, you know, and thank God we're starting at the M1s now to teach them the new ways to treat. But now we got to catch our graduated, you know, people already and, and give them other tools in their shed to kind of hopefully help with pain management. Yeah, we, we couldn't agree with you more. And I'd like to think that's exactly what we're doing here at GW with the integrative medicine programs. Yeah. Um, and hopefully you and, and others are helping to spread that around. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I think we could have gone on for another hour. So we'll have to have you back on. Thanks so much, Dr. Sweden. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frain. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.